Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Case of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hello there, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage for November 22. I say the date because we're going to be talking about the Victorian election. And I, I suppose, Maria Teflaga, this is uh, probably one of the third or fourth last uh, pods for the year, and we normally... We haven't exactly worked that out, but um, it'll be something like that. And uh, there's there's a you know bit happening around the place. But of course, toward the end of the year, we usually have our awards episode where we indeed have a little bit of fun at the expense of some of our political leading lights. Uh, give them a give them a uh, a mark. Um, hand out the uh, I wouldn't call it Oscars, not even really Logies, but um, hand out some awards for uh, some of the better performers and perhaps some of the. Oh, let's face it, you know, it's it's more fun at the bottom end of the scale. <laughs> it, it is. It is. But it's, it's it'll be interesting this year because, uh, you know, there's been a change of government, obviously, therefore a changing of the guard. You know, a, a, whole, a whole lot of new people have uh, have come forward. Um, that's right. That's right. New fertile ground for our consideration. <laughs> that's right. Yes. For our, for our summary dismissal. Um, I should actually formally introduce you correctly, of course, Dr. Maria Teflaga, a senior lecturer at the, Politi- the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU uh, and my regular co-conspirator. Is that a tautology? I mean... Uh, no, no, I think you can be regular and you can be involved in conspiracies. No, I was thinking about the co-conspiracy bit. Co-conspiracy. I mean. Oh, um, I, I'm not sure. No, I mean. no, no. I, I, I think that's, um, well, I guess you might be engaging in conspiracies and I might be engaging in separate. I feel like this will be edited We've got out. our own conspiracies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Look, this week we're going to be, as I said, taking a look at the Victorian election. It's the first state election since the May federal poll, which is quite interesting because I suppose there are... They're always uh, they're always kind of washovers in from state to federal and, and otherwise sometimes overstated but uh, in interesting kind of political dynamics that exist between the levels of government and which have political implications perhaps not so early 
in the term of a of a Labor government, uh, but we'll get into all of that. Um, and to do that, we're joined by Dr. Andrea Carson, who is Professor of Political Communications in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy, Philosophy at La Trobe University, a newly crowned, if crowned's the right term, professor. Andrea, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you, Mark and Maria. Great to be here. Uh, it's been. It's we, we should have had you on a long time ago. I don't know why we haven't, or have we? Um, I, I have, no, 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 certainly... no, we haven't. We haven't. I believe. Oh no, I'm very pleased to say this is my first appearance on Democracy Sausage, and it's a great thrill. So thank you for the invitation. Well, that's very kind. That's of course you and I have appeared on on the odd thing together, so that might account for my confusion, or it could just be you know sheer mental fatigue at the end of the year. I'm not sure. Um, and also with us is Phoebe Heyman, who is a PhD candidate at La Trobe University. Also, her thesis topic is electoral field Compa- campaigns of the teal independence. Now, that's pretty germane, uh, I guess, to um, to the last election federally. And we're about to find out in a few days' time to the extent to, to which it is a, uh, a big factor here in the uh, in the state election, Phoebe, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Also, thanks for having me. It's nice to actually come take part rather than just listen every week. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> first time, first time panel member and uh, you know, a regular listener. I think that's the way it's said. Anyway, Andrea, before we get into sort of deals and stuff, just just give us a sense of what kind of a campaign this has been in Victoria, because we're obviously uh, interested in interpreting this for a broader audience. And, you know, Maria and I are sitting here in Canberra. Um, Has it been the usual state election campaign or are there sort of dramatic differences? I think there's a number of dramatic differences. It's been a fairly nasty vitriolic campaign that's very personality centred. It in some ways feels like a referendum on the leadership of Daniel Andrews and also approving of the re-entry of Matthew Guy into the um, political leadership sphere after he had that role a number of years ago and then um, lost it very unceremoniously with headlines about lobster with the mobster. <laughs> Still yes, one right. of the greatest tabloid lines of the last it's decade. Very memorable. However, yeah. those headlines have now turned, I think, more their attention on Daniel Andrews with some pretty nasty campaign coverage, mainly coming from the Murdoch Press, from the Herald Sun. And these things have, um, in my view, have amounted pretty much to smear rather than journalism, um, critiquing the height of the steps that Daniel Andrews um, fell down when he was renting a beach house that led to him being out of his job for 100 days. Uh, uh, the speculation that goes around that I think is um, fairly unpleasant. And there's been other headlines um, around Toxic Dan and those sorts of things. However, the question always is how much influence does mainstream media have these days? And we can get into it, but looking at the ad spend that's been going on on Facebook, it um, is certainly where the politicians, the candidates and the political parties think they are meeting the voters is more in the social media space and podcasts too, of course. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, as an outsider, I, 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 it's actually really interesting to me that, that you are basically sort of saying that in some ways this campaign is a referendum on on Dan Andrews and how much of that is actually about uh, COVID? So how much of this election is backwards looking and how much of it is it forward looking? It's a great question. It's hard to tell, but just to give some wider context, Many political promises have been made during this campaign, over 400 by the Liberal Party, 200 by Daniel Andrews. 
I think most voters would struggle to name three or four of those because the coverage has been so dominant uh, revolving around the leadership of um, the two major parties. And that's misleading too because I think the outcome of this election is going to be a much more plural parliament um, The and we'll bring Phoebe in to talk about the independents and the Greens, but there's certainly a protest vote. So to get to your question about how much of this is a COVID hangover, I think Daniel Andrews is going for his third, camp, his third term. Um, that's a difficult task, as Mark well knows, for any leader, and it comes off the back of pretty severe lockdowns in Victoria, um, seven or eight, depending on how you count them. The other aspect to this is the median voting age in Victoria is now 38. So it's younger people and younger people have been disproportionately affected by those lockdowns, as have women. And there has been some policies that have been very tilted towards serving women, not least of all spending multi-millions of dollars giving out free menstrual products in public areas. So if that's not a policy designed for women, I don't know what is. Wow. Just on that, actually, um, I was also having a bit of a poke around in the Facebook ad library the other day and a lot of the Labor kind of ads targeted, particularly at Liberal candidates, You, if you look through which demographics they are pointing them at, it tends to be younger women by and large. Um, so it's obviously something that they are trying to tap into. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, um, as Andrea says, a very sort of personalised campaign what does it suggest, Phoebe, to you, or I suppose this is a question to both of you, so I'm interested in, in, in your views, but what does it suggest about the research they have? I mean, the Libs presumably have uh, market research that shows Dan is a Dan Andrews is a negative uh, among some voters or uh, when matched against certain issues, uh, and presumably uh, Labor has its own um, its own research about how well Matthew Guy connects with voters as well. And you can kind of look at, often you can look at the ads and you can you can reverse uh, assess what it is that is driving that messaging. Are we seeing a lot of that? I, I would tend to agree. Um, I suspect Andrew is probably across it more than I am, but what I've seen has been, by and large, negative ads focused generally on the leaders of each party. Mm-hmm. Um that being said, there is definitely some local nastiness going on as well, which we can get to and talk about the on-the-ground stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, Mark, we know from research that negative ads are viewed by political parties as working, and this has been an overwhelmingly negative campaign. The main messaging coming from the Labor has been um, Matthew Guy's the cuts guy. He doesn't build, he cuts, which is kind of interesting because of the promises that have been costed by the parliamentary office, the Liberals are planning on spending an extra $34 billion compared to $12 billion from Labor. So that doesn't really suggest cutting. That suggests at least a, a big spending spree. On the other side of politics, you've got the Liberals that are very much aimed at Daniel Andrews and I think um, this hangover from the lockdown and that is don't wake up with an Andrews hangover and don't let him get away with it. So really trying to hold Daniel Andrews to a can and making him front and centre when Victorians go to the polls. And, of course, and I'm sure we'll get to this, many Victorians have already gone to the polls. Mm. So even though we're seeing a narrowing now in the very last stages of this race, many people have already voted. In fact, over about a million have voted out of 4.39 eligible million voters 
uh, and that's pretty sizable. It's expected that half of voters will have voted before election day, which of course is bad news for you guys because it means democracy sausages are going to be less in demand on election day than they normally are. So that's that's actually fascinating. Because um, um, we get a cut from every democracy sausage that's, that's, table, that's, you see. That's yeah. right. That's how um, we fund this operation. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. If only that was true. I wish we had thought of that before. Um, 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 but it does make me think, Andrea, um, the health debate, right, which is clearly central and critical to um, – this campaign because of, of COVID, right, which is direct, which is around the sort of personality politics that you're talking about. But how much of this debate is actually kind of structured around the fact that, you know, in effect, um, the Labor Party has been the party of government in Victoria for, like, well, since, since uh, the mid-1990s and, you know, the state of the health system in Victoria and how it was able to react to COVID is kind of, you know, their legacy. So, is you know, you're talking about the fact that the Liberals have, promised to spend twice as much like but but is this actual debate functioning on a on a policy level is that the discussion being had or is it actually just all about smear if there were policy areas to pick out that um, this campaign has focused on it's absolutely health and maybe some of the big transport infrastructure projects and a little bit around um, affordability of electricity bills but health it's been like spinning a wheel every week, which hospitals now going to be promised with an upgrade or a rebuild. And what's interesting is both sides of politics are um, picking the hot major hospitals off the election board and saying they'll get behind that one. This is particularly um, important in my household. We live over the road from two major hospitals and my partner works at one of them and it was one of the last to be promised the upgrade. And he's like, when's our turn coming? Um, but it's very much been a, a big focus of the spending and and the promised delivery of this campaign. But as you say, it's it's been a long time coming. You've had Labor in power for some time and the health system's really been under pressure as a consequence of COVID. And sadly, as numbers are starting to increase again, we're starting to see increases in those hospitalisations as we go um, towards Christmas. This is often referred to as, in, in political speak, as the it's time factor, isn't it, where, where governments have been around for a while, they start to get tired, voters start to get tired of them, uh, and, and this particular term has been utterly atypical as a result of the pandemic and particularly so in Victoria where the where the government response has been uh, and the health authorities response has been so uh, so decisive uh, you know the lockdown periods and and the conditions of those lockdowns have been stronger than in most other places often it's referred to as the the most lockdown city in the world or at least democratic city uh, I, I wonder is that is that a is that a factor here, or is it? I mean, this I suppose this is a different way of asking what Maria was saying at the opening about um, about whether it's looking backward or looking forward. But how strong is that resentment or dissatisfaction with those lockdowns, particularly in the business community? I mean, we hear people talking about whole sections of uh, of you know retail streets where there are empty shops, for example, that you know basically didn't survive the lockdown. And I suppose what I'm asking is, how much of a factor is that? And has Matthew Guy and the Liberals have they? managed to find a way to sort of articulate that resentment politically? Well, they've certainly encapsulated in the ad campaign that they've been putting out with don't let him get away with it and don't wake up with the hangover. 
it's going, we've got a few contradictory forces going on in this election, which is going to make it um, interesting to answer that question. I don't think we'll know to be on Saturday. Mm. But on one hand, we've got a record number of candidates, um, well above what we've had in the past, over a thousand. I think last election it was around the 700 mark. We've got lots of people volunteering to be involved in political campaigns for Greens and independents, but also for Labor. So we're seeing some real political engagement there. And yet we're also hearing, or I'm hearing a lot of people saying they've switched off from this campaign, this great rush to get the vote voting over and done with, um, not really tuning into this fairly vitriolic campaign. Um, so that backlash that you're talking about, Mark, how that plays out in the polls, I think that's what's making Matthew Guy competitive. Um, and one might have thought he wasn't going to be competitive given the legacy of his political career. Uh, and we have seen this narrowing of the polls today with Resolve um, of the Nine Network putting it at 36% primary vote each, although some commentators point out when you get preference flows. And they also are hard to predict because we've now got Liberals preferencing Greens, which they haven't yeah. done for a very long time, <laughs> instead of Labor. So we need to be careful about that. But that's if they follow the preference flows and they're accurate about how they calculate that, and I put a big if, it goes to 53-47 in favour of Andrews, which is still a fairly comfortable victory. And we also need to keep in mind he's got a big lead here. He's um, got uh, 11 seats that they can play around with before they lose office. So uh, the, I uh, think out of how many? It. How many in the uh, House of in the lower house? It's like 47? 88. Oh, yeah. 88. Uh, that's 88, wrong. 40 in the upper house, 88 in the lower house. 47 in South Australia. Though. Yeah. <laughs> and they've got You're mixing 50, up your states. <laughs> they've got 54 seats at the moment. Right. Um, so needing 44 um, plus a speaker, I guess, to govern. All right, just finally on this, um, in the last few days, and I'm not sure whether Resolve would have, uh, the, the polling would have been in the field and, and, and sort of captured much of this, but there's been a lot of headlines about candidate selection in the Liberal Party and some pretty strange comments from Renee Heath, the uh, ticket leader in the Eastern Victoria upper house race for for the Liberal Party, and Timothy Dragan, the uh, Narrawarren, is it Narrawarren North candidate for the Liberal Party. Both have uh, indicated some pretty extreme views, um, anti-First Nations, anti-climate change, anti-kindergarten, one of them even. Um, Anti-abortion, uh, you know, really, really hardline stuff. Matthew Guy was was asked about this, and he talked about it being a matter for the party, and 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 then uttered the words because it's not my job uh, to 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 um, make these judgments. And of course, Labor quickly jumped on that, used footage of uh, Scott Morrison saying it's not my job, it's not my job, and then just cutting straight to Matthew Guy, it's not my job. Again, that I go. I guess that goes to uh, the point that both of you made about how personal this is, and how how sort of presidential these these campaigns are are being reduced to. But how much of a factor has has been just the sort of division within the Liberal Party over a period of time, uh, and uh, and this kind of chaos uh, from the messaging of the Liberal Party in the lead up to the poll? I think it's made it quite difficult for them to. Um, be seen as a kind of cohesive alternative. So despite the really large policy platform that's been brought forward, you are looking at a party that doesn't seem particularly better organised or particularly more cohesive or you know, running better on things like integrity, which I'm sure we'll get come back to with the independents. Um, so you're not getting this sense of 
despite the huge policy platforms, which are in some ways quite visionary, you're not getting this sense of a cohesive vision um, when you get this infighting that has been going on. And the lack of ownership, I think, for some of it has been an ongoing issue, particularly given the overall negative tone of the campaign. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that um, the the Liberals, uh, one of the things that Matthew Guy was championing the other day was uh, an app that uh, the Libs are proposing to uh, have Victorians move to, which would give people access, you know, sort of consolidation of access to all the services that uh, um, people need when they're dealing with government, all they have to do is hand over their information. And, of course, I immediately thought, <laughs> I don't know if handing over a lot of information to someone right now in the wake of the Optus thing and the Medibank thing is necessarily the kind of thing that people feel as confident about as perhaps they might have uh, a while ago. And <laughs> Quite possibly. I, I guess that's the, the, they're, they're borrowing from their cousins in New South Wales with the the service um, New South service Wales. Service New South Wales, yeah. Well, Matthew Guy's got a Scott Morrison problem, and that is that he doesn't have too many moderates in his party. The party's been um, has a minority, a, a large minority group of the religious right, organised religious right, that have taken over, and we're hearing some of those comments come through yeah. with those candidates that you mentioned there, Mark Renee Heath, especially. That's not a surprise, those comments. We've known about that for a while. Um, it's also got a couple of other problems other than that religious right infiltration, and that is it's got low membership. Football clubs like um, Collingwood have greater membership than the Liberal Party. They're running out of money. Um, they've had their fair share of economic scandal. And the other big problem they've got is changes to the fundraising laws in Victoria, which is a real clampdown, which means that they're not able to get individual or even organisational donations of greater than just over $4,000 over the course of a four-year term. That's really limiting. Of course, it's subsidised by the public purse as well, but that's based on how many seats you win or votes, sorry, how many votes you get if you have uh, above a 4% primary. And at the last election, that delivered a big windfall to Labor, not so much to the Liberals because they had that landslide victory. So without money, with this religious right infiltration um, and having low membership, it's a pretty divided party. And Matthew Guy is desperately trying to paper over the cracks of that. Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? He has a Scott Morrison problem, as you say, because he's in the same party as Scott Morrison, I guess, and Scott Morrison's still there and still in the minds of voters. And, of course, many voters remember the whole Catherine Deves debacle in Warringah uh, at the last election when he handpicked that candidate and she ran her you know, anti-trans agenda and so forth. And it just didn't resonate well with mainstream voters. Uh, and it looks like Matthew Guy's got some of the same kinds of um, hardliners uh, bobbing up inside his party and raises questions about, you know, candidate vetting and, well, and as you say, organised infiltration. He, you know, really. I think when he sort of said, well, that's not my job, right, like he's, he's speaking to the, the, to the truth of the way that candidate selection is organised within um, the Liberal Party itself and political parties. And, and, and on the one hand, that's actually a good thing. You don't necessarily want leaders being able to sort of handpick people and, and parachute them into seats. Catherine Dees being a good example of why that may be a negative. But um, you want to know their views, don't absolutely. you? Absolutely. But, but the fact that he says it's not my job 
goes to exactly what Phoebe said, which is a big clanging bell on the fact that he doesn't dominate this party. Yeah. And that even though they have decided to spend a lot of money on promises, it's not cohesively driven um, with, with, an, with an agenda. And, I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like because of COVID and because of the, um, because it's a third term and because of the sort of all the paint that has come off the Andrews government, they, they are competitive sort of despite themselves. And, and it's, and, um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm I really want to get into the sort of other actors mm, well, involved we'll do that. in this contest. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that in a moment. In fact, what we'll do is we'll take a quick break now and we'll come back and we'll get into into those other actors and the ground campaigns. You're with Democracy Sausage, of course, which comes to you each week from the ANU. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking before about, we just started to flag this idea of what's happening with the campaign on the ground, because we've talked a lot about uh, some of the bigger issues, the leaders and the and, and the media to some extent. But um, what's happening on the ground? Is, is, is Does this, uh, Phoebe, resemble the federal election in the sense that there are pitched battles going on in safe heartland seats, uh, that teals are bobbing up, uh, independents may play a role? Yes, would be my short answer. Um, I think it's difficult for any candidate to mobilise the same amount of on-the-ground support during a state election. You just don't have quite the same momentum in some ways. That being said, the teal candidates, so I've, I'd categorise them in a few different ways. You have the Climate 200 supported candidates, which is only four of them. Then you have a couple of others, um, so looking in areas like Brighton and Sandringham, that I would categorise as kind of teal-like Teal light maybe, but they are not Climate 200 supported themselves. Then we have a bunch of kind of more community-backed independents. So you're looking at areas like Melton, um, Mountain Werribee, these sorts of regions. In most cases, they're candidates who've run before and done pretty well in the previous election and they're coming back for a second tilt. Um, and you're looking at kind of ex-Labor heartland areas where you have some of the biggest ballots in the state, so up to 15 candidates on a single ballot sheet for the lower house. And then finally, we have a couple of rural, more Kathy McGowan-style independents kicking around. Um, generally, I'd say they've done a really good job of bringing over volunteers and that on-the-ground campaign from the federal election. Looking through uh, photos, I've seen a lot of the same faces, but also a lot of the same systems, um, mm. so same sort of campaign affordances, websites, these sorts of things, which does suggest that they have many of the core team, so the people who are behind these campaigns and strategizing them during the federal election, have themselves moved over. 
There's a saying you can't be what you can't see, of course, in, in, in reform movements, things like feminism. Is there an element of that here that people have seen what happened and what was possible out of the federal election, this election's come along and people have jumped on that, some of them legitimately and some of them just sort of appropriating the the badging and the machinery trying to, uh, as you say, some of them people have bobbed up before, for example. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, um, and this was even a thing during the federal election is that as independents are more successful, it encourages further independence. It's a kind of self-fulfilling cycle. Um, so we have seen a huge growth based off that, I would say. Um, and that has really led to, there's been a few of these independents who have previously been members of parties, some up until quite recently. Um, some went up for pre-selection within parties for this state election and have then shifted to running an independent campaign, which does suggest that this is at least a viable backup option. So I I have a couple of questions from what you said because I thought that was fascinating. So, I mean, in these Labor seats, right, you know, which I think the the Liberals sort of have hopes that they can basically flip them, um, but, you know, how realistic might that actually be on the ground when you've, you know, you've obviously got these community candidates that are perhaps more... um, uh, you know, ideologically aligned to these communities in a way that perhaps um, that guy might not be. Um, you know, h- how is that kind of uh, sort of playing out on the ground? And 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 the the other question that I have is, well, what are the issues that are actually salient in these campaigns compared to the the federal one? Yes, if you're looking at Melton, um, Werribee, these are areas that have grown really rapidly. So you're looking at those kind of big housing development sort of areas, um, lots of new builds going up. And infrastructure and um, these sorts of support services haven't kept up. So hospitals, this sort of thing, are really, really big issues in these areas. And they're generally feeling neglected, seems to be the tone. Um, these are safe seats who have not seen the same amount of funding as perhaps some of the more marginal seats have or at least feel that way very strongly. So that being said, I don't think the Liberals necessarily have the cut through they'd need to pick up these seats. You are looking at more of a general disaffection, a general movement away from parties and anger on both sides. Um, I would, I, I like particularly, I think Point Cook with Joe Gara looks like a definite possibility, um, as does Ian Birchill in Mel, Mel, out in Melton. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So you, you, there are a couple of seats, for example, where you actually think there's uh, I, I know it's a dangerous thing to predict <laughs> just days out from an election, but uh, we won't hold you to it. I mean, obviously none of us know what's going to happen. We didn't know what was going to happen. There's a lot of people who are very wise about the independence after the fact uh, of the uh, last election, um, and, and and there are a lot of people who were dismissing them completely beforehand in the in the mainstream media, for example. So a lot of people sort of got it wrong, and some people now say they got it right. So obviously there's all those kinds of problems. We don't know what's going to happen on the day. But uh, there are a couple of seats. I think you said, uh, what was it, Point Cook and Melton, was it? Yeah. Um, and I would just say, even if they don't win, it does speak to a certain mood that's going on in these areas. I would observe, though, that the environment's um, somewhat different to what it was in the federal sphere. And your opening comments, Mark, referred to, you know, state elections aren't the same as federal elections and voters don't necessarily map on the same way. In fact, I would say they vote differently. Mm-hmm. And here you had a very succinct platform during the federal campaign for the Teal-sponsored candidates, which was around gender equality, environmental policy and integrity. Mm-hmm. 
The Labor government's done quite well, in fact, very well on gender equality. It's got reasonable environmental credentials. There's a question mark over um, governmental integrity. But also the candidates that are coming forward that are being um, sponsored by Climate 200, two of them are contesting Labor-held seats and two of them are contesting, this is out in the South, Phoebe before was talking about independents that were in the West, and two of them are contesting Liberal-held seats, all with margins. We're seeing some serious money being thrown by Sophie Tawney, um, in, who's contesting Q on a small margin there. Uh, she's spending quite a bit on Facebook, as is Kate Lardner, who's running for Mornington down um, on the Mornington Peninsula. We're not seeing so much of an ad spend for the other two, Melissa Lowell, Nomi um, Coltman, who are Hawthorne and Caulfield, respectively. And part of this speaks to the very difficult um, changed fundraising environment that they're in that I spoke to before where they're only allowed to take up to four, just over $4,000 over four years off any indi- individual organisational donor. That really cuts out the capacity for Climate 200 to be um, helping these campaigns uh, in an economic sense the way that it did in the federal government. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually. Um, it raises some of the things you said there, raised some other questions as well. I noticed that you named a number of those candidates, the female candidates. That was the defining feature of the Teals or the community independence that sort of uh, washed into parliament from the last federal election. Is that the case here or do we have uh, we have men running as well under that banner? As far as I know, there's only one independent candidate who um, is a man that I've seen describe himself as a teal, um, and that would be, I believe his name is Clark Martin, um, and that might be Sandringham. So that overlaps with Goldstein, um, but has not received Climate 200 funding and is running on a far more diverse set of issues and without the same sort of systemic organisation that you've seen from so the others. So what are the Teals and, and and these independent community candidates like running on apart from neglect out in the West? Um, integrity is a big one. So that's one that I think they are capitalising on perhaps some of the negativity that is coming from the major parties and directed at one another. So it's made it really easy for them to push forward on that. I think other than that, they are having a bit more of a complicated time, even just in that, for example, a big part of it in the federal election was Liberal candidates often don't run huge field campaigns, for example. They don't do a lot of door knocking, these sorts of community engagement activities. And you're starting to see that shift a little. Um, so like John Pasudo and in Richmond, which the Liberals have a very, very you know, poor odds of picking up, but Lucas Moon has been out door knocking in public housing residents. And these are quite unusual activities for a Liberal candidate at a state election, or at least on this scale, yeah. um, I don't think I've observed previously. It's interesting, isn't it? That, I mean, state election elections uh, or state electorates, I should say, are significantly smaller than federal ones. And so there is, the, I think, a greater capacity to have more impact with the kind of personalised election style campaigning. So uh, perhaps that, yes, they can't spend as much money, but they don't have to reach as far as you do in, in a federal election campaign. To complicate that, though, I'd just perhaps interject to point out that they also therefore have a much smaller group to recruit volunteers from. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's kind of it's everything gets scaled down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Uh, the other difference, though, I mean, I'm interested in this uh, thing that both of you have mentioned about um, integrity or the sort of corruption and, and and issues around that. I mean, obviously, a key, it was a it was a very key point of litigation in the federal election because the previous government, the previous Morrison government, the existing Morrison government at that point, had simply failed to deliver on an anti-corruption commission, and Labor was proposing to do so. There was a pent up. You know, it's very much a pent-up issue uh, in the electorate. Victoria has the, what is it called, the Broad-Based the Anti-Corruption Commission, IBAC. So there's already a, f- a fairly powerful body there. It's not quite as uh, explicitly or publicly powerful as as ICAC in New South Wales, but... So, 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 how do you how how are they energizing this issue, like electorally, Andrea? How they, how can how can they turn that into uh, the sort of black and white issue that it was in the last federal election when there wasn't an anti-corruption commission federally? Well, the mainstream media is probably doing it for them, Mark, is the short answer. We've had this highly unusual situation where the Victorian Electoral Commission, because we have a state-based electoral authority in Victoria, we don't use the AEC, has referred um, allegations or um, some unusual behaviour from the Liberal Party, which um, brings in Matt Guy uh, around uh, whether they a question over whether they've breached their um, election spending around these new rules. They've asked for information about this, an unusual thing to do during an election campaign. They claim the commission claims it hasn't been able to get sufficient information, has referred the case off to IBAC during the election campaign. So that has made headlines. On the other side of things, it was also revealed just prior to um, the caretaker mode that Daniel Andrews was being investigated by IBAC as well. There were a variety of suppression orders around that, so we don't have full details. So this idea of integrity is a cloud that's been hanging over both of the major parties making the job much easier for those independents and teals. Yeah, I mean, if we think about it, um, you know, as an outsider um, looking in, like some of the biggest stories coming out of Victorian politics aside from COVID is the Adam Somurek case, the the uh, Michael Sucker, Christian Bastian, um, you know, claims around uh, membership tribes. Um, the, the red shirts, the sort of staffers who were doing electioneering. Indeed, and, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, the demise of um, uh, former member for Menzies, um, Kevin Andrews, for example. Um, so... It, that doesn't actually surprise me that these things are at the top of mind, particularly given the debate around IBAC in Victoria, you know, was one of, of effectively its inability to not be resourced sufficiently to actually pursue several of these um, worthy or potentially, you know, potentially meritorious investigations. In my mind, the question is how much this is going to resonate with voters. It's one thing for us to be talking about it here and, um, We've worked in in political spheres and um, in the media and very interested in those what are often termed beltway issues. I don't know how much they resonate with individual voters and one of the challenges is going to be for those independent until candidates to um, put it front and centre to lift the salience of this integrity issue. And I don't know how much engagement there's been. Uh, One indication could be the amount of Victorians that have already voted shows they've made up their mind. There's not a lot of um, umming and ahhing with the undecideds there. Yeah. So, Phoebe, tell us about the sort of third, I guess, pillar of this or the fourth pillar, rather, of this election, the Greens. What are the Greens doing? So, the Greens 
um, are likely to benefit from the Liberal Party changing their preference policy, although there has been, um, I believe there's been some stories going around about candidates who've been putting out their own how-to-vote cards and then changed them back. Um, can, so- can, can I just stop you there and just ask you just to clarify that because will this, oh, yes, will this, will this, no, 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 nothing that you said was inadequate. It was more that I was thinking uh, a major party preferencing a, a minor party in lower house seats normally doesn't add up to much. Um, it's you know it's it's more of the gesture. To, what's the payoff for for the Greens? Is it in upper house seats? Uh, is it lower house? Um, so it's particularly seats. Are these of, seats where where the Greens will actually be uh, contesting with Labor. Yes, yeah. yeah. So you've got um, Northcote, which was the seat previously held by Lydia Thorpe briefly, uh, which full disclosure I did work on that campaign. And during, so that seat was briefly a Greens lower house seat and since then has been a Greens Labor contest. Um, And the Liberal preferences are likely to perhaps be enough to shift them over the line. Similarly, down in Richmond, um, you're looking at, again, it's comes down to Labor versus either Greens or Liberals. Um, So where these preferences go can really change the outcome of these seats. I would say absolutely Richmond will go to the Greens. At the moment, the Greens have got three lower house seats and I think they'll also benefit in the upper house. You've got a very popular um, Labor Member of Parliament at Richmond who's retiring in the form of Dick Wynne and a pretty strong Greens candidate there um, who has lived in the area for a long time. It's also a marginal seat at 55.8% being held by Labor at the moment. There's even talk that the seat of Albert Park, which was um, Martin Foley, the health minister's seat, which has a large Labor majority, might even be in contest for the Greens, um, given the sentiment for Greens at the moment, although these latest polls show that they've moved from 12% support back down to 10%. But I I think we'll see more Greens in the parliament after this election Um and we haven't spoken much about the upper house. I spoke to a la- some Labor insiders on the weekend. That was best described as a zoo by those um, members. It, it has a crossbench of 14 already out of 40. <laughs> and this protest vote that we've been talking about, um, the backlash against Daniel Andrews, is pretty active with um, some parties named Angry Victorians running in the um, upper house. So I think we'll see that. Zoo have some more colourful characters added to it after this election. Oh, how lovely! What uh, what's in it for the libs to be uh, doing this deal with the Greens? What do they get out of it? I mean, best case scenario, they help take seats off Labor, which means um, they need fewer. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really it would at best probably be those three seats. So, but the Greens aren't going to. Surely, the Greens aren't going to do a uh, some sort of reach an arrangement with a minority Liberal government. It's a great question, Mark, because if it ends up being minority government, and some of the headlines are suggesting that, I'm not super convinced at this point in time. But if it is, you would think that minority government would be a Labor Greens coalition that will form, not a Liberal Greens. So. 
you just wonder how far the Liberals have thought through the strategy of moving away from the two-party model um, to bringing Greens into being a quite a significant minor player. Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me just looking at it from afar that it's sort of turning itself into a bit of a donut party. So it's sort of going to the left in these inner urban areas and then it's sort of drifting to the mad right with some of its candidates in on, on the fringes. And surely the lesson out of the last few elections really and what we saw federally is that the Liberal Party needs to start talking to the middle to middle Australia, it needs to start talking to Hawthorne and those places where uh, where Liberal voters, educated Liberal voters, have drifted away from the party because they think it's extreme. Yeah, I agree. Um, I love that line, the donut party. I can see a headline there. <laughs> well, I've written a few headlines in my time. <laughs> And so I guess what is the expectation? You know, are people expecting um, Labor to return or is there a sense that the contest um, now, you know, having so many different potential uh, pillars, the population uh, sort of, I guess, entering this election cycle, having gone through, you know, a significant uh, two years of extreme pressure, um, you know, is there a sense that there is a real wild card in that in the mix? I would suggest no. Um, it's despite all of the yeah, many, many characters we have running, the m- multiplicity of independents and candidates, I think in many ways it still feels really likely that Labor will probably get back and they'll probably get back in with a majority government. Um, I don't want to be held to that, but it is the sense that it will be, we'll get a lot more crossbenchers, but ultimately the government of the day will not likely change. So often the case, isn't it, that governments uh, reach a point where you think on on the balance of kind of orthodox indicators, Maria, the government would probably lose were it not for an opposition that for one reason or another manages to make itself unelectable. Um, you know, we think back to the 93 election, mm-hmm. for example, or and there have been a few of these cases through history. I, I, I wonder whether that, that uh, as Phoebe's saying, you know, Labor... Labor gets back in, but perhaps with a bit of a chaotic outcome, possibly, you know, big crossbench in the upper house, um, you just get that kind of fag end of a government. Well, quite possibly. I, I, I actually want to know what Andrea thinks she's more likely to have a better answer than me. I, I'm not sure that's true, but I would say that Daniel Andrews is very lucky to be up against Matthew Guy at this election. Um, that's one piece of good fortune that he's had. And I'll be a little more circumspect in that I don't think Matthew Guy will have the capacity to govern outright. Um, whether it's a majority government for Andrews or not, it's hard to tell at this point, given that we do have so few data points with polling in Victoria and they're usually low numbers, you know, about a 1,000 each time. Um, but I, I, And the upper house will certainly be one that's going to require compromise to get bills through. I guess what is really interesting to me is what happens in these Labor seats where people are really very angry. You know, is this the sort of the start of effectively the sort of whatever the the pink version of, of the teals is for, for Labor, you know? Because if we think about it, the, the teals have been running in this mode for several election cycles at, at state and federal level. It takes a long time for people to work out 
how to organize and how to mobilize people? That's a great question. From I'll let Libby, our Phoebe answer in terms of the independence, but for Labor, there's 16 um, members that are not contesting this election, which is a large number. There's a lot of newcomers coming into the parliament if indeed they do get the opportunity to govern. That in many ways is going to cement the authority of Daniel Andrews even more. So if there's lessons to be le- learnt here, um, it's probably around that authoritarian piece that he's often accused of um, and one would hope that he's listening to that. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's part of larger trends that have been going on for a few elections now where it, there is a bit of a shift away from parties going on. Mm. Um, traditionally, historically, Greens have often filled that for Labor, um, but that's really stagnated over the last decade or so. So whether or not that's left space for something new to grow, the difference I would suggest is that independents in and of themselves aren't a new thing necessarily. The shift with the Teals has been that as a movement that does have a lot of cross-pollination, a lot of relationships and sharing of ideas despite maintaining independence. So whether or not you see that sort of a movement develop around independents who are challenging in traditional Labor seats, it really remains to be seen. Yes, it's going to be really fascinating. It seems to me that the, the, the um, magic of those successful independents that we've seen come into the federal parliament has been that really interesting and powerful combination of community roots and, and representation in their campaigns, really, really critical part of it, uh, you know, stemming right back from the Indi campaign, uh, Kathy McGowan's original campaign against Sophie Mirabella and, and that model being used more broadly and having very simple uh, clear values propositions that they are putting forward, and we know those three things that the uh, the community independence broadly ran on in uh, in um, in the last federal election, and that I think is a turned out to be a powerful combination. Whether whether that that clarity exists in Victoria uh, for for them as individuals and as some sort of brand positioning in the in the political marketplace, I guess we'll see how how much cut through they've had um, in, in a few days' time. We're going to have to um, wrap it up there. It's been a fascinating discussion and uh, we're going to look forward to this uh, Victorian election now with uh, with greater understanding of what's been going on on the ground and what some of the issues are. So, Andrea Carson and Phoebe Heyman, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having us. And thank you, Maria, for being on this Democracy Sausage, as always. uh, As uh, I often say, it comes from the ANU each week. We've got a few to go before the end of the year looms, and uh, we'll be looking forward. You know, we've got – I've I've got the first Democracy Sausage Keep Cup now. Oh, really? Yeah, I should have shown this to you. Um, Maybe we could give those to our prize winners. I think we could possibly. um, Or your guests. Or the guests, yeah. I don't know if we can (laughs) afford that. should ask Brian for money for more cups. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, Until next week, bye for now. 